Amen. Good evening. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 2 Timothy 2.15, please. We're continuing our distinctives of uh, Calvary Chapel. And we come to striking the balance. The Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself, approve the God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You can't just uh, know doctrine if you just read casually. You have to roll up your sleeves. You have to put some energy and time and, and prayer and everything else with it. And God has given us a brain. He wants us to use it. Um, one of the biblical doctrines that has divided the church since the 16th century is the doctrine of salvation under the two camps of Calvinism and Arminianism. The entire system of Calvinism did not have its origin with John Calvin. Many people don't know this. But with Augustine from the Catholic Church. The Reformers were ex-Catholics and brought with them the Augustinian idea of salvation of the elite and the eternal security under the teaching of Calvin. As a Catholic is guaranteed, and you know this, some of you were ex-Catholics as I was, they're guaranteed heaven by trusting the Catholic Church, and if they can have their last rites with the priest, regardless of how they live, if that priest can get to you, you know, you've got your last rites. Lawrence M. Vance, in his book, Other Side of Calvinism, um, documents that John Calvin did not originate the doctrines uh, that bear his name, and he quotes uh, many well-known Calvinists to this effect, such as Kenneth G. Talbot, W. Gary Crampton, and many, many others. They themselves acknowledge that. So this is not anything that's contrary to what they teach themselves. B.B. Warfield declared, quote, The system of, of doctrine taught by Calvin is just the Augustinianism common to the whole body of the Reformers. The Reformers came out of the Catholic Church. Reformed theology and theologian Herman Hankel said, quote, Our fathers at Dorchet knew well that these truths set forth in the canons could not only be traced back to Calvin's Reformation, they could be traced back to the theology of St. Augustine, for it was Augustine who had originally defined these truths. Dave Hunt says this very clearly in his book, What Manner of Love, on page 84 and 85. Listen to Calvin's own words. I'm quoting him. Quote, Augustine is so holy with me that if I wish to write a confession of my faith, I could do so with all fullness and satisfaction to myself out of his writings. At the National Synod of the Church convened in Dort in 1618 and 19, nine years after the death of Armenians, nine years after the death of Armenians, to examine the teaching of James or Jacobus Arminius, which at that time, the five points of Calvinism associated with John Calvin were stated. So they're not even at the same time in terms of both of the men's lives. Regarding this council, John Wesley said, Dort was so impartial as the Council of Trent. 
Don't overlook the church for injustices. The history of the church is an embarrassment as you look to it, both Catholic and Protestant. The only church history I accept is the book of Acts. There's so much corruption, even to the present day. Arminius was charged with so many false doctrines from Socinianism, the denial of predestination of the true nature of the atonement and the Trinity, to Pelagianism, the denial that Adam's sin affected all of mankind, and undue emphasis on free will, salvation by grace plus works, and the possibility of sinless perfection. These are false accusations. Arminius was a devout follower of Christ who suffered much for his faith, even having his entire family murdered while he was at the University of Marburg in Germany when Spanish Catholic troops massacred the population of his hometown of Ottawater in Holland. The Catholic Church was ruthless. You don't oppose her. They were called the Dark Ages because they were smart. Or good. In spite of all this, many in our day, including Calvinists, repeat these and many other false accusations against Arminius. And anyone who does agree or doesn't agree with the Calvinism or Calvinists in their five points of the tulip, which is the acronym for the five points. And then they're labeled as Armenian. Oh, you're an Armenian. While not being so. So in other words, if you don't agree with them according to their definition, and we're just going to briefly look at the five as we move through this point, um, then they call you all your Armenians. A.W. Tozer stated the following. Both of these men were wrong in what they denied and right in what they affirmed. In other words, two extremes. Any text to an extreme end is in, ends up in heresy. Philip um, F. Congdon writes that, quote, a tulip is a beautiful flower, but bad theology. Dave Hunt in his book, What Love Is This, says Calvin applied his legal training, law, he was a lawyer, and natural brilliance to the development of a system of Christianity based upon the extreme view of God's sovereignty, which by the sheer force of its logic would compel kings and all mankind to conform all affairs to righteousness. Indeed, a partnership with the church, kings, and other civil rulers would enforce Calvinistic Christianity. Calvin tried this at Geneva. It failed. And we don't have time tonight to go to all the atrocities that he committed himself. Zane C. Hodge writes regarding the five points of Calvinism known by the acronym Tulip, quote, none of these ideas has any right to be called normative Protestant theology. None has ever been held by a wide cross-section of Christendom. Most important, none of them is biblical. All of them lie outside the proper parameters of Christian orthodoxy. To teach that God predestines some by his eternal decree to heaven and the remainder of people to hell is a terrible, blasphemous charge to the holiness and the justice and the love of God. How do you justify a God of love then? 
Well, they just say, well, he's sovereign. Well, that, that just solves the whole thing? No, he can't contradict his attributes. It's foolish. It's an illogical conclusion out of a rational deduction with not one scripture to back it up. Human logic and rationalism is mixed with partial biblical truths. That's the problem. Now, our faith is reasonable, but it's not based on reason alone. It's been stated. The late Pastor Chuck Smith, founder and leader of Calvary Chapels, believed and taught for 48 years from December 1965 till October 2013 the balance of the middle ground between Calvinism and Arminianism. In view of the fact that both predestination and free will are presented thoroughly through the scriptures as part of the whole counsel of God, complements, not contradicts itself. And so very important. Now, Chuck didn't take such a hard stand if you've read his book that I've asked you to read as we're going through this. Because the first edition was in 2000. And I'll give you some quotes later on Chuck. And I think 2003 conference, he told the closet Calvinists to leave and not call themselves Calvary Chapel. Because it began to be a big problem. But when he first wrote the first edition, it wasn't that big a problem. Um, this being one of the distinctions of Calvary Chapel on salvation, as he stated it. Now, we neither are five points, he says, this is Chuck, we are neither five-point Calvinists, nor are we Armenian. We do not believe in the security of the believer, or we do believe in the security of the believer. We don't believe that you can lose your salvation because you lost your temper or told a lie, and as a result, need to go forward next Sunday night to repent and get resaved, as many times if you've been in Pentecostal circles. That happens, okay? Um, we believe in the security of the believer, but we also believe in the perseverance of the saints, he says. We don't believe that because you're a saint, you will necessarily persevere, but that you need to persevere because you're a saint. Now listen carefully. He says, Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. There's the illustration. You got it? Now here's the application. He's quoting Jesus. If you abide in me, who's he talking to? John 15, his disciples, his apostles. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, as you desire, and it shall be done to you. And if you go on and read in the next verses, he says, and if not, you will be cut off and cast to the fire. He goes from the illustration to the application. Who's he talking to? His apostles. Real simple. So Jesus taught abiding in him. Now, after the death of Chuck, some Calvary chapels have moved away from this distinctive of uh, the balance to the neo-Calvinist position. Yet, in the pastor's conference, I said in 203, Pastor Chuck asked the closet Calvinists to leave and to change their name. They did not. They infiltrated, and many of them went that way. And so right now, there's a tissue between the Calvary chapels. Now, we will follow what we've always thought. We will not change. We are individually autonomous. We are not a denomination. We don't take orders from anybody. We take no money from anybody. We trust in the Lord where he guides, he provides. And I keep coming every Sunday because you keep showing up. That's all. All right? 
Now, the exercise of our free will does not work for salvation, but rather the enabling of God for salvation. Any attempt to teach either predestination or free will at the expense of the other will be unbalanced and extreme, ending up in spiritual error. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility are both taught in and through the scriptures. The expression, holding I am held, describes this beautiful balance that is known to its full end only by God. We are to abide in Christ confidently and courageously, knowing Jesus is able to present us faultless before his throne. Jude 24. Abiding in Christ Jesus. So, let's look at the doctrine of salvation from three perspectives or camps. First, Calvinism, the teaching of man. Second, Arminianism, the teaching of man. Third, Biblicism, the teaching of Scripture. It simply means what the Bible teaches. Biblicism. You want to stay to the Scriptures. You can't stack Scriptures. You can't choose this half and then ignore the other half. You can't say, I have more scripture on this side than that side. Because God's not the God of contradiction. So let's begin with Calvinism, the teaching of man. The doctrine of Calvinism is related to the French reformer, John Calvin. John Calvin lived in 1509 to 1564 and was the second generation reformer. One generation younger than Luther, Swingley, Melanchthon, and Bucer, who he depended on. Greatly, in particular, Bucer, for the doctrine of predestination, acknowledging this, quote, I have particularly copied Bucer, that man of holy memory, outstanding doctor in the church of God. The failure of Calvin and many of the reformers was to seek a reformation of the Catholic church instead of completely rejecting her. They tried to reform it. That was a big mistake. Calvinism sometimes is known as reform theology to distinguish it from Lutheran or Anabaptist theology. Calvinism is founded upon John Calvin's institution of Christian religion too. Puritans and Presbyterians were influenced by Calvin. The teaching of Calvinism is sometimes described as five-point Calvinism. The interesting thing is that Calvin's teaching is presented by those who reform, uh, of Reformed theology in different ways, as being two, three, four, or five-point Calvinism. That's a problem. This is the result of Calvin's followers who have carried his teaching out to their logical conclusion rather than their biblical balance. The heart of Calvinistic theology is the sovereign, eternal decrees of God. All that happens is because God has decreed them. In other words, nothing can happen unless God decrees it. If he doesn't decree it, it's not going to happen. And if he decrees it, it cannot be altered. Well, we can find all kinds of exceptions in, in the Bible. Absolutely. So in other words, what I'm talking about, my, waving my hand, has been decreed, 
So I was going to do it anyway. I have no free will at all. That's what they're talking about. It's like watching a rerun, hoping to see something new. You're not going to do it. The teaching of five-point Calvinism is best known for its acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity is the first one, which is the belief that man is dead and trespasses and sins and unable in any way to save himself. The problem is that it has some similarity to the scripture. Calvinists define this to say that man cannot even desire a relationship with God or respond unless God regenerates him first before salvation can take place. Teaching two births. My Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, then regeneration. Romans ten seventeen, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. They teach you have to be regenerated first, then be born again. So faith comes after regeneration. Contradiction of scripture. Teaching two births. So their very first point is defined unbiblically. And it's the base for the next four. So if the first one is wrong and they're all dependent on the preceding one, guess what? It's the leaning tower of pizza. Simple. If you put this huge building with a bad foundation, it's all going to crumble. It's simple. Second, you, unconditional election to the eternal decrees of God, which declares that God in eternal past chose or elected certain people to obtain salvation. Unconditional election. Some Calvinists carry this so further to teach double election or reprobation that God elected some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Totally unbiblical. Show me one verse. Never. So, unconditional election looks back upon that you can do nothing for it. He has to regenerate you before you can respond. Well, my Bible says that the preaching of the gospel is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit brings conviction to a person, then the person is enabled to choose to repent or not repent. And by the way, if you're going to go by that proposition that you're so dead you can't choose or decide or even desire, then how can you reject these things? If I can't choose, then I can't reject either, right? I'm dead. It's a false logic. It's a false premise. Then there's the third point, limited atonement, which teaches that Jesus did not die for the sins of the entire world. But rather, he died only for those he elected to go to heaven, which clearly contradicts Scripture. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in it should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, some Calvinists attempt to explain it with semantics that Jesus died for all, but does not pray for all, and that his death theoretically could save everyone, but is effectively only for the elect, substituting the word elect. For whosoever or the world altering the scriptures. So every time they come to the scripture, like John 3, 16, for gospel of the world, whosoever, they insert elect there. That's a violation of scripture. Whosoever is the whole world. Every sinner. Not the chosen frozen. Now, the fourth point, irresistible grace, the I, is the belief that God will draw to himself only those whom he has elected Regardless of the rebellion against him, 
for man has no free will. Therefore, the only free will allowed to the non-elect is to say no to offer salvation. So you have no free will. You cannot resist the grace of God. So if God has elected you to go to heaven, you're going to heaven whether you like it or not. And if he's elected you to go to hell, you're going to hell whether you like it or not. You don't have to hear the gospel. You don't have to make a decision. You are predetermined. Does that sound like the God of the Bible to you? That's a crazy theology. A clear violation of free will and human responsibility. This with unconditional election has led some hyper-Calvinists to teach that evangelism is not even to be done. Because those who are elected and predestined cannot resist God. And so what's the sense of evangelizing? Which is true. This is really philosophical Greek determinism. The dice of the gods are loaded. Wow. Fifth, you have the perseverance of the saints. The last letter. Or eternal security. It's a teaching that says that a true believer born again of the Spirit cannot walk away from his salvation. Ignoring all the warnings and exhortations to the believer to continue to abide and to turn back to God if he walks away. There's hundreds of them. What do you do about it? So notice how a circular reasoning. Let's take the first point. You cannot respond. You cannot determine. You cannot do anything. If he has elected you, you're gone. So therefore, if that's the case, then the last point, you, you have to persevere. Because God elected you, right? What is that? That's circular reasoning. So I take the fossil. I date it by the strata. And I take the strata. I date it by the fossil. Where I get my beginning date? It's circular reasoning. It's nonsensical. So the only other option to explain a person going back into sin for a Calvinist is that they were never born again. Which, by the way, is one possibility. It is true, but not the only one. First John 2.19 says they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would remain with us. But they went out from us to show they weren't of us. First John has three groups of people. The Gnostic, the deceiver, the Christians who are being deceived, and the Christian who's resisting deception. Three groups. All right? Simple. As a parent, do you warn your child hypothetically because there's no real danger? You be careful where you go tonight. You be careful what you do. You warn them because you know you've been there. Simple. Lawrence M. Vance in his book, The Other Side of Calvinism, declares, quote, The basic error of Calvinism is confounding, uh, confounding election and predestination with salvation, which they never are in the Bible, but only in the philosophical speculations and theological implications of Calvinism. They confuse the two. Election and predestination. All Calvinism, Calvinists have one thing they agree upon. God, by his sovereign elect decree, has determined before the foundation of the world who shall be saved and who shall be lost. Okay, so let's illustrate it. My left-hand side, all you guys, you're going to heaven. All you guys are going to hell. Now, mind you, all of you deserve hell. 
And I call myself holy and perfect and good and just. Would you conclude I am? Of course not. But if I am God, if I am holy, I am good. And I send my son to die for all of you. And I preach the gospel. And I tell you that he died for your sins. That if you believe that, you can be forgiven and be saved and go to heaven and escape hell. Now you have that human responsibility to make that choice, right? Now I'm holy. Now I'm just. Well, all times I know who's going to choose me, but I'm not forcing you to choose me. Because that wouldn't be free will. And that certainly wouldn't be love that prompts you. You have to weigh those things out, ladies and gentlemen. Calvinists, by rejecting the simplicity of salvation taught in the scriptures, have constructed a system of salvation that is unbiblical, accompanied with an intricate, invented vocabulary to explain their doctrine of salvation, the acrostic tulip, as I went through it. Vocabulary such as superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism, total depravity, total inability, reprobation, preterition, double election or reprobation, synergism or non-synergism, free will or effectual calling, perseverance or preservation. Wow, where are these found in the Bible? Nowhere. So they have their own vocabulary, their own little thing, and they create their straw man. That's it. Wow. Go back to Augustine. He was the first one to teach it. In the 400s. Calvin came along and sprayed it and packaged it and published it. (laughs) Wow. Calvinism is the teaching of man's logical theology. That's why Calvinists really don't care about evangelism. For the most part. They care about persuading you, converting you to Calvinism. They go fishing in the church. So they swap goldfish. Instead of going to the ocean, to the world, fishing for jaws. (laughs) Important. Second is Armenianism, the teaching of man also. Armenianism is associated with James Arminius, who was a Dutch theologian. He lived from 1560 to 1609. Arminius was four years old when Calvin died. Let me repeat that. He was four years old when Calvin died. And most people think they were contemporaries. They were not. They never even met. So the two men could have never met, let alone debated their views. Before Arminius was born... Anastasius Valunus, 1520-1570, had rejected the predestination of Calvinists in his book, A Layman's Guide, which circulated all over the Netherlands. He was born as the Reformation was already firmly established in Germany and Switzerland, but not in the Netherlands, the land of Armenius. He lived when the Reformation in the Netherlands coincided with its liberation from Spain's domination and the rise of the Catholic Counter-Reformation to stamp out the increasing threat of Protestantism, ensuing edicts against Lutherans, Anabaptists, and their writings, many being burned alive. 
He was appointed a legal guardian in his father's death. Theodorus uh, Emilius, some names if you're going to have babies, uh, 1574, a Protestant learning priest, cousin to his mother. After his death, a second guardian, Rudolphus Smellius, was appointed, also a cousin of his mother, a linguist of mathematicians from the University of Morgurb of Germany, who enrolled Arminius in Marbury in 1575. His studies were interrupted that very year as Spanish troops, as I said earlier, invaded Ottawater and massacred the town, killing his entire family. He then spent the next five years at the University of Lydden from 1576 to 1581, distinguishing himself above the classmates and formerly ordained on August 27, 1588, and was the first native Hollander to minister in the Reformed Church of Amsterdam. He married the daughter of a prominent merchant two years later and had 12 children. Three died in infancy. He remained in Amsterdam a total of 15 years until 1603, writing extensively, but most of his works were not published until after his death. He was as orthodox as the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. As any Calvinist, and like Calvin, he was not the originator of his system that bears his name. It was the followers. He taught that man is born with a sin nature inherited from Adam through the fall, believed the scriptures were inspired, infallible, inerrant, all 66 books. He believed the nature of the attributes of the Godhead and the Trinity. He, like Calvin and other reformers, was strongly anti-Catholic. Got to go back and put them in the history where they're at. Classifying himself besides ones who said the Pope was, quote, the adulterer and pimp of the church, the false prophet, the destroyer and subverter of the church, the enemy of God, the Antichrist. There was a real revolt against the Catholic Church during this time. He received his theological training from the Academy of Geneva that was founded by Calvin and studied under Biza, the successor of Calvin, subscribing to Calvin's statements on justifications found in his institute and sanctification. Amazing. He was a student under the Calvinistic institution. He started out as a committed Calvinist and then modified his views. Yet he believed in eternal security like the Calvinists declaring, quote, At no period have I ever asserted, Cal- uh, um, Armenia said, that believers do finally decline or fall away from faith or salvation. So though he did not like Calvin, certainly followers did. So once again, a human logical conclusion. He became sick, confined to bed. Controversy daunted him. Personal attacks were endless and theological controversies over Calvinism. 
His views were expressed in the documents submitted to the state of Holland by his followers called the Remonstrance in 1610. In 1618, nine years after Arminius died, a national synod of the church was stated, was convened in Dort to examine the five points of Arminianism and was declared to be heretical after 154 sessions that lasted seven months, at which time the five points of Calvinism associated with John Calvin were associated. This was nine years after his death. Little history helps us. Yet Arminius was a devout follower of Christ who suffered much for his faith and is the theological basis for the Methodists, Wesleyan, Nazarenes, Pentecostal, free will, Baptist, holiness, and many, many charismatic churches. The teachings of Arminianism also is known by five points as objection to the five points of Calvinism. You can not be one, two, or three-point Calvinist, I said. It is either five or nothing, and since the first one does not define itself biblically, it is faulty of a foundation which all the other four are built upon. Election based on God's foreknowledge of those who would respond to salvation is the first one of Arminius. So he rejected the idea of unconditional election. I also agree with him there. And that God elected some for hell. He rejected it. He believed that God foreknew who would respond to salvation. He made it available to all. Unlimited atonement. The belief that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all people and his blood is able to atone for them and can save them. Rejecting limited atonement. I agree with him. The third one, natural inability, meaning that man cannot save himself, but the Holy Spirit must bring about the new birth. Now, strict Armenians do not believe man is totally depraved and condemned as a result of Adam's sin. This is called Pelagianism, contradicting Romans 5.12, that Adam's sin and death and sin passed to all men. Okay? So we see his followers deviated, the extremists, even further. Fourth, prevenient grace, which believes that the preparatory work of the Holy Spirit enables the believer to respond to the gospel and to cooperate with God in the work of individuals' salvation. Wesley was big on this. This is the mystery that we don't know. Again, the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is illuminating for conviction, and then we are enabled to make a decision. We are not forced to make that decision. For if God would force a person to make that decision, then he would have no free will. If God pre-decrees everything, then that means that everything that happens, when a woman gets raped, when a child gets killed, that means that God decreed it? That's what you have to believe. That would be terrible. Of course not. Fifth, he had conditional per perseverance, the belief that man can choose to reject God and therefore fall from grace and salvation after he has been born again. His followers believed this, but not Arminius. Calvinists called this works. 
But there's no works about it. It's abiding in Christ Jesus. If you do not abide from me, you can do nothing. You're cut off like a branch and cast to the fire, right? We don't abide because we're so good. We abide by the Holy Spirit of God, by the Word of God, by His grace. The only real fault of Armenians was to disagree with the established doctrines of Calvinism. Just as the Catholic Church persecuted Calvin, Calvin persecuted Armenians and the Catholic Church also. Armenians had four significant disputes over Calvinism during his ministry. Three in Amsterdam, one in Leiden. Burkhoff says, quote, It is a well-known fact that Armenians himself did not depart as far from the Scripture's truth and from the teachings of the Reformers as did his followers. Even as now, Pastor Chuck is dead. And now even his son-in-law, Brian Broderson, departing really radical. Okay? Into the emergent church. What do you say about that? Very, very rarely does a movement go into second generation. Because that next generation thinks they know better, right? They corrupt things. Armenians, Armenianism is the teaching of man's logical theology. Which leaves us with our third point. Biblicism, the teaching of the scriptures. Biblicism, for the lack of a better word, is the interpretation of the Bible literally. That is what we are at Calvary Chapel. We neither embrace all five points of Calvinism or those of Arminianism. Only what we can verify through the scriptures, Acts 17 and 11, or to be like Bereans, to examine, to find out little things are so. You have heard me from this pulpit through the last 36 years to change on a few things. Because as I study more, I saw that I was wrong. Nothing wrong with that. That's why we keep studying. So that we can find out if we're wrong. We say, no, you know what? This is the correct meaning. This is the right thing. That's what we're to do. The failure of these two camps is to think that this argument of predestination and free will can be completely understood in the mind of man. I say, I listen to him. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8, 9. I can trust God for I cannot understand, based on what I do understand. There is so much that I do understand from the scriptures being born again, that the little that I cannot understand to its full end doesn't bother me. Because I know even though I may not understand it to its full end, I know it's true because God says it. Right? Simple. Paul tells the Romans, All the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgment as ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has known, or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it should be prayed Him? Romans eleven thirty three thirty five, Nobody. The depth, the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable. How dare we. 
You know, there are some emergent church, I don't even want to call them pastors. They say, you know, if I was God, I would never put this verse here. Really? I'm quoting them. Wow. You're like a God that's smoky right now. Amazing to me. The teaching of predestination or election is biblical, but not the way Calvinists teach it. But it's clearly taught throughout the scriptures from the perspective of God's sovereignty and foreknowledge. Overemphasizing and wrongly defining the sovereignty of God is a problem. Basing everything that happens of the eternal decrees of God, making God the author of sin, saying that God decreed the fall of Adam. That's terrible. Every Calvinist tells you that. Nothing can happen besides the decrees of God. So therefore, God decreed the fall of Adam. Follow me with here. They teach that God predetermined Adam to fall. And yet God in the garden says, you can eat of this, but you can't eat of that. And if you do, you're going to die. And you dare to teach that God forced Adam, Adam had no choice, he had to fall? Then the punishment has to be unjust. That makes God unjust and the author of sin. I'm not willing to say that. And if you do, you're crazy. You're teaching a different God. Not the God of the Bible. You're destroying his attributes. The teaching of man's free will by Arminianism is also clearly taught throughout the scripture. Man is a free moral agent. The invitation is whosoever will. All who are heavy laden, choose you this day. Whosoever thirst, doesn't sound like God's forcing you. Not like an invitation. The provisions are for the whole world. First John two two says, and He is the propitiation for our sins. Ours, the believer, and not only ours alone, but the whole world. Philip Shaft in his history of the church states that both of these men are right. In what they assure, both are wrong and what they deny, as I stated in the beginning. If either truth is pressed to the exclusion of the other, it becomes a partial biblical truth and ends up in error. The Al Moody said, predestination and free will are like two parallel lines that never cross in this side of heaven. But when we get to heaven, we will see exactly how they cross. It's like two oars. If you get out there, you only have one oar. You go in circles. You need two oars to go straight, right? Simple. The teaching of biblicism is simply the belief in the balance of the two biblical truths. Recognizing the futile attempt to fully understand it to its rational end. Predestination and free will is much like attempting to squeeze a slimy oyster. Just when you think you have it, it just slips right out of your hand. We at Calvary Chapel believe that man is depraved. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We at Calvary Chapel believe in God's predestination from the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says. We at Calvary Chapel believe in man's free will to be saved and whosoever will can take of the waters of life freely, Revelation twenty two seventeen. We at Calvary Chapel believe we are elect 
according to the literally and in harmony with the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 2. But he didn't determine us against our will. Very important. We at Calvary Chapel believe that we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. And no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We at Calvary Chapel believe that Jesus Christ made a vicarious atonement by his death for the sins of the entire world to forgive us and redeem us by his blood. The one who repents. He died for the whole world. The logic of the Calvinists to say that if he died for the whole world and some of them reject or end up in hell, that would be an insult to the atoning efficacious work of the blood. Where does it say that in the Bible? These guys sound smart. But they're not. They're anti-biblical. And they boast about their academics. They call themselves Calvinists or the intellectual giants. Well... If you're in hell, it doesn't matter. How, what a giant you are, right? I'd rather be a spiritual midget in heaven than a giant in hell, intellectually. If they think they're smarter than Satan, they're crazy. Remember, Satan was once in heaven. The warnings throughout Scripture are not hypothetical, but real. Hebrews says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 10.26. He's talking to Christians, believers, brothers. Not non-believers, Christians. Calvinist says the book of Hebrews is for non-believers. Hebrew priests who, Hebrews who never came to the day. They just taste it. Really? In chapter 2, the same words, Jesus tasted death for every man. Same grammatical thing. So you mean Jesus didn't really die for me? He just tasted death? Never swallowed it? Want to use that logic too? It's semantics. It's, it's foolishness. Notice, sin willfully after you have received the knowledge of the truth. This is different from falling into sin, backsliding. This is one who has gone back to the world after being saved. Hebrews 10.29 Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will, be, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. There are five warnings in Hebrews, each progressive and more severe, as you know. A Calvinist would simply say this person was never born again, excluding every possibility that they could walk away. So that's it, huh? That's the explanation. So either you are or you're not. When the Bible teaches you are, you're not, you are, and you go back. I think the people that come back to the Lord are few. I think most who go back in the world do not come back. Two entered the promised land from three million that came out of Exodus. Eight people got in the boat. The rest of the world perished. They asked Jesus, are there many to be saved? He says, few strive to enter in, agonize, for narrow is the gate that leads to heaven. 
All the warnings to continue and abide are given to the believer, not the non-believer. The non-believer is lost. He belongs to Satan. You and I used to be there. Jesus makes this clear. We must abide in him. Listen carefully. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me. He goes from the branches now to the people, his disciples he's talking. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone, not if any branch, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If there is no possibility of you not abiding, why would Jesus bring it up to his disciples and apostles? Do you, do you tell your kid, don't cross the street because there's no danger? Of course you don't. I have never doubted my salvation in 42 years as I abide in Christ. Listen to me. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he said to his apostles, listen carefully, one of you will betray me. Read the Gospels. Every one of them said, is it I? Every one of the twelve knew they had potential and capacity to betray Jesus Christ. So much for predestination against your will. Wow. If there is no choice in the matter, if I'm predestined, then why do I have to study? Why do I have to obey? I'm going to go to heaven no matter what, right? And if I'm, on, I'm predestined to go to hell, then I'm going to go to hell, right? So why am I wasting my time? It's kind of a mute theology, isn't it? It's like a mule that can't reproduce. Wow. The teaching of falling away is evident in the scripture. Listen, 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, the latter times of the church age, some will depart from the faith at different times, all the time throughout the church age, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. At different periods, different times of the church age, this is going to take place all the time. The last days are different. The Apostle Peter provides us with an awesome warning, Second Peter 2, 20 and 21. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wow. Does that sound like born again? <laughs> That's me. And they again entangle in them and overcome. And the latter end is worse for them than in the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it. To turn from the holy commandment and deliver to them. A non-believer can't do that. Only a believer can. How can the believer know and be assured of his salvation? By abiding in Christ. The word abide and abides in the plural appears 21 times in the first epistle of John. It means to remain Continue and not depart. When you leave here after the study, you're going to depart to the parking lot. You're now abiding in a chair in this auditorium. 
When you get up and leave this auditorium, you will have ceased to abide and you've departed to the parking lot. If you were never in this building, I could never say you departed from it. You have to be somewhere to depart from it. It's elementary, ladies and gentlemen. We're not building a Steinway here. Yet the entire work of salvation is of God. And he enables us, but does not force us. It is in him that we are to be confident and abiding always. Chuck Smith said, quote, There are people who are always trying to pigeonhole Calvary Chapel. Do you believe in eternal security? I say, yes. Of course I believe in eternal security. As long as you abide in Christ, this drove them crazy. I'm eternally secure. They, they drove people crazy. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of what? Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. You abide in Christ. There's no need to doubt. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. This is the confidence, assurance of the believer. Abiding in Christ. By giving diligence, making his calling and election sure, seeing that certain things are present in his or her life. Listen to Second Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to keep, to make your call an election sure. For if you, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And he gives that whole list of things. Abiding. If you're a husband or a wife and you're abiding in a relationship with your husband and wife, coming home every day, doing what you're supposed to as husband and wife, there is never any lack of confidence of your wife or husband departing from you, right? But if they start not coming home one night at a time, once a week, then twice a week, thumbs up. Right? You must abide. By knowing that Jesus is able to keep me from falling and to present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jude verse 24. My confidence is in Christ. By our love. As we spoke this morning. That he gives to us. The word assured is biblical theology. The word security is man's theology. So I don't use man-made words. I try to stick to biblical words so we don't have to redefine them. I stick to biblical terms so we both have the same glossary, okay? I don't try to make myself over that I have something on you and smarter than you. We have the same Bible. The Bible tells us we are saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. The process from birth to glorification, yet in the mind of God, it's already done. I am being saved, I have been saved, and I'm going to be saved. Past, present, future. It's a process. Ephesians 2.8, 1 Corinthians 1.18, Hebrews 9.28. All three tenses are used. You might look at the two scriptural doctrines of predestination and election and free will like walking through a door. On one side over the door, it says, choose. You walk through it, you look back on the other side, it says, I chose you. Choose, I chose you. Walk in the door. 
If you don't walk in, want to walk in the door, then walk out. But you can't blame God, right? The invitation is to choose. You get to decide, I chose you. But he didn't force you, right? You want to fault God that he knows if you're going to choose or not? When he knows all things? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Biblicism is the teaching of Scripture. You must study to show yourself approved unto God. A workmanship that doesn't need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing, cutting through the word of truth. Like a point man scouting the area for war, cutting a trail for those that are going to follow. This is the doctrine of salvation from the three perspectives or camps. Calvinism, the teaching of man. Arminianism, the teaching of man. Biblicism, the teaching of the scriptures. I want to go with the scriptures. There's where I have my assurance abiding in Christ Jesus. That's what we believe at Calvary Chapel. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, for every person here, and we pray, Lord, for those that are looking and hearing over the Internet that you would speak to them. If there's anybody who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts of your desire to save them, to forgive them of their sins. And so, Lord, we do thank you. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You're the only one that can make that decision. God will not make it for you. If you believe that you are sinners and your sins separate you from God and therefore his wrath is upon you, but you also believe that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins and he made that payment to the Father and that if you agree with him, you can call upon him and be saved. Then you can call on him. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. You are saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord Jesus. And he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and my Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.